Welcome Digital Wildcatters to BDE. Today, in a surprise, we have a new guest host, Jake Corley. Jake, the one and seem, only. I'm you, here. You seem to be the only digital wildcatter with a healthy prostate because uh, that's what keeps Colin on the IR you, here. He needs a lot of work. He needs <laughs> a lot of work. I'm excited. I'm excited. I haven't actually co-hosted BDE with you before. So let's do this. Let's dive right in. What's happening in the uh, the world of energy today? All right, so Whiting and Oasis closed their deal. They became Cord Energy. So you've got a Bakken pure. Okay. Wait a second. Okay. Wait a second. Yeah. Their name ahead. is Cord Energy. So like, I'm pulling up this. We have like the press release here, and I'm just gonna read this. Yeah, you're just gonna read to. this, right? The word chord is frequently used to describe multiple musical notes sounded simultaneously and harmoniously, while an alternative definition is a line segment joining two points on a circle. Core energy represents the joining of two separate entities whose complementary strengths create something more formidable than either independent entity. But hey, at least it's not a pharmaceutical name, right? It's not a pharmaceutical name or the missing letter yeah. name. You know, it's, it's like, like you'll take yeah, you'll yeah. take the the word and you'll drop out three letters and somebody hey, will charge you a million dollars for that. McKenzie made out like a bandit on that one, I guarantee it. But like you said, the, I mean, this is a massive consolidation in the Bakken. Yeah, so million acres, 175,000 barrels per day. That's a lot. And, you know, at the end of the day, the Bakken needs, like, one company. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to – is this – is Cord Energy the entity that ultimately uh, does it? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe so. You've got kind of a handful of bigger assets out there. Exxon still has the old XTO assets yep. that have been rumored to be on the market for the last three or four months. I haven't seen a press release about anybody buying them, but they're out there. You got Kraken out there. Um, Hess is a big player out in the Bakken. And then NCAP uh, in January bought Equinor out of their position for like $900 million. Mm -hmm. And you know, what was oil at the beginning of the year? $65 a barrel, $70 a barrel, something mm -hmm. like that. Not so the that's timing there. Yeah, that's potentially <laughs> doubled Yeah, doubled in value there. Who has so, the biggest position in the bucket? Is it, is it this one? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I want to say XTO is bigger than than uh, than this, and it, you know, with the Bakken, you have your tiers of acreage. You definitely have the core of the core, and then you have tier two, tier three, and so acres can be a a bit of a mm -hmm. misnomer. But there needs to be a a, a pure play Bakken player because. I mean, I think my, my sense on where the Bakken is is we've hit all of the acreage there with the big hammer. We know what's left. It is just kind of a declining asset out over time. And when you do that, you know, what does that mean? That mm -hmm. means cut costs and big companies do that better. So absolutely, that's that. Um, you know what? Let's, let's do this kind of while we're here on EMP M&A. So Ring bought Stronghold this week for $465 million. Stronghold was bought by, or backed by Warburg. Just the Permian Basin assets, not the whole company. Oh, worse than that. It was the yeah. Central Basin platform assets <laughs> on the Permian. So I feel like you've got a bone to pick with yes, the Central Basin assets. So, yes, so I lost a ton of money in the Central Basin platform. So I described this deal as shit plus shit equals shit squared. Now, in fairness, the folks from Ring should come on and talk about how wonderful their company is but yeah no so the central basin platform is a lot of san andres production and quite frankly we won world war ii because of the san andres production we had there 
And the way you used to drill St. Andrews is, because it, it was shallow vertical stuff, mm-hmm. you just drilled until you stopped producing oil, and then you moved like a mile or two over, <laughs> and you started drilling again until you found oil. And you kept doing that. Well, kind of the play pre-COVID, so think like 2016, 2017, 2018, was to go into this St. Andrews and drill horizontally. Mm-hmm. And as want to happen sometimes, the first producer that did it, just struck it rich did really well uh who was that uh i'm blanking on their name they were backed they were backed by every private equity firm at one point or another it kept it kept flipping around it just looks like a nascar yeah it was just covered in sponsors (laughs) the but um no what so but what happened was you would go and you drill the horizontal and when people tried to replicate it and i bet private equity spent billion billion and a half dollars trying to replicate it you wound up with just these huge water wells out there. Mm-hmm. And what happened with the one little area that worked was there was a frack barrier on top, frack barrier kind of on the bottom. So you were able to frack and you didn't have the inflow of water that you had everywhere mm-hmm. else. Everywhere else, the St. Andrews, just a big old, you know, 90 some odd percent water cut stuff so anyway i hate the central basin platform i hope this deal works out i'm sure the folks at ring are nice people but yeah i'm done i never want to go back to the central basin platform (laughs) all right so let's go let's let's go over to uh everybody's favorite energy source coal coal consumption hits a new high favorite energy source hits a new high right absolutely yeah. No, I mean we're we're using more coal than we ever have. Um, globally. 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 Right. Yeah. Um, the it. What's interesting is you know we put all these export bans on Russian oil and natural gas. We're doing the same thing with coal, albeit slower. Their export coal exports are at record levels. So trivia for you. And unfortunately, the answer is written on your sheet. Yeah, I'm not gonna look so at it. I'm not gonna look at it. They're the fourth largest exporter of coal in the world. Who's one through three? Largest exporter of coal. Exporter of coal. So you've got the dynamic of you got to have a lot of coal, but at the same time you can't internally use a lot of it. I imagine we're probably one of the biggest exporters, right? Uh, We're not. We're not. We're not in the top four. We're not in the top four. Um, It's going to make sense when I tell you this, but I don't know. I'm stumped. No clue. So number one, Australia. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, huge yeah. natural resources, yeah. not a not a huge population. Yeah. Number two, Indonesia. Same thing. Really? Yeah. And then number three, South Africa. Those okay. are those are your three largest uh, exporters of coal on Did the planet. Did not know that. So Russia's exporting more coal than they are, ever have, and it's all going to China and India. Last week or two, yeah, last week on BDE, Colin and I talked about how coal consumption by India was up 16x over kind of the last three-week period versus before. India's like, you know, we'll take your discount, Russia. Yeah. <laughs> it's, fi- it's fine. we got room for that. Um, what's interesting is Europe, who spent a lot of time um, a lot of time being nasty to us. We'll just put it mm-hmm. that way about climate-type stuff. They uh, Imports of coal have risen there by 35% kind of year-to-date. And they import all of their energy stuff into Antwerp, Rotterdam, Amsterdam, that area. And the stockpiles of coal there are at an all-time high. And, you know, 
this is I mean it it's it's logical right as, as, a, as a backup to you know what if uh, Putin decides to just cut off all of Europe uh, from from oil and gas however you're talking out both sides of your mouth here fair your Europe is yeah, oh, yeah right totally yeah yeah no and and I mean Germany's starting to obviously is kind of the poster boy for this mm -hmm. uh, we're gonna shut down our nuclear plants uh, we're going to shut down our coal plants. We're going to run off renewables. And they're sitting there with the highest energy costs in Europe going, holy shit. And they're having to turn back on their coal plants. Mm -hmm. And uh, so U.S. and Europe, since 1985, we've decreased uh, coal fire generation by 35 to 40 percent. But Asia is up almost 20 X. Yeah. Now, is that also chart, since 1985? Yes. Okay. The, the chart on that is just wild. I mean, Asia is this. Yeah. You know, in terms of building coal fire pipe, because, you know, I've said on the podcast for years that the, the, the global, the climate change big deal is let's sit down with China and India and say, we'll finance natural gas infrastructure to you. You just stop using coal. That's probably mm -hmm. the best thing we could do. Brian Gitt came on the podcast and Brian said, well, the first thing China's going to do is say, screw you. We don't have that much natural gas. We're not going to depend on you guys mm -hmm. for uh, fuel. We're going to keep uh, burning coal. His whole take was societies, as they increase in wealth, can then consider things like climate, um, just smog in the air stuff like that so his take is what we actually need to do is let them industrialize as quickly as possible so they get to the point where they stop using coal i don't know that that's the answer because if you look at that trajectory since 85 it's crazy mm -hmm. crazy drw did take uh coal in the energy policy i still need to go did. watch that i haven't even seen it yet. you haven't seen yeah, it no it was, it was great he was like if i'm drafting first or if i'm drafting sixth I was taking coal because there's going to be a shortage of energy and all you fuckers are going to be freezing to death and I'm going to be warm. <laughs> His other great point was, uh, the other great thing he said was, if I'm Brian Trudeau, the first thing I do for Canada is I put a coal plant on every corner. Because if we can raise the temperature of the planet five degrees, guess what? Canada would be bearable. <laughs> <laughs> he can say that he's canadian yes exactly exactly all right data point of the week drive time congestion falls three percent in june over may uh so 33 out of 40 cities were surveyed uh and yes i mean is this is this work from home is this demand destruction like what is this yeah you know the the deal with with demand is we always know what oil gasoline demand is about six to nine months ago we mm. have a really good picture there when it's happening we're just notoriously really bad at watching that yeah and so you know just kind of you're always looking for canaries in the coal mine and and this is pretty wild because you know this this group surveys 40 cities looks at drive time uh congestion it was all 40 cities except for Indianapolis. So I don't know what's going on in Indy. Maybe it was the NFL combine. It was Indy 500. There we go. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that was it. But uh, they're all below pre-COVID levels. The month-to-month -month drop was the largest since the beginning of uh, COVID. And it's been trending down the last six weeks. So, mm -hmm. 
have we hit demand? Which is interesting because usually in the summer, doesn't drive time usually go up because everybody's doing road trips and they're traveling more? Yes. Yes. And there, there's an element in their data of kind of seasonally adjusted type stuff. And it's also, I think, measuring drive time passway, uh, passageways. So if people are off taking the family vacation, mm-hmm. you know, that I don't, I'm not sure that factors into it. But globally, the picture's a little better. You're seeing China pick up and, and others. But I think that's just distorted by COVID lockdowns. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's two main things at work. Obviously, work from home becoming more popular. People aren't having to drive. Um, I think that that's going to change as we've already started to see that change with certain companies. Second thing is gas prices. I mean, we're at this is the highest gas prices I've ever seen in Texas, yeah. at least in my lifetime since I've been driving. Um, and you got think in places like California, it's like seven dollars uh, right. a gallon. You know, it's it's wild, you know. It's I think it, it's making some people, regardless of your kind of financial situ- situation, rethink, you know, how I'm driving. Maybe be a little bit more efficient and kind of planning certain things out, or just maybe not doing certain trips across town. Like, you know, you gotta think if I'm gonna drive across Houston, for example, right now, that could easily, you know, be what quarter tank to half tank. Yeah. And you know, I've been doing the Pickering thing. So Dan Pickering's anecdotal evidence on this is what Dan does is anytime he fills up his car, he looks at every one of the gas pumps and notices if it was a fill up, you know, $72.83, or if they stopped at $10, $15. And he has seen a marked change in fill ups being less of a percent of what he's seeing. So every time he's stopping, he's seeing you know $15, $20 worth of gas, which is people metering in their gas or, in effect, financing their, their gasoline. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, no, this is a real thing. Because if you think about it, the last time we had, call it 100-some-odd-dollar oil was 08, 09, and you did have demand for oil drop a million barrels, a million two barrels a day for the year, first time in, like, 20 years that it had ever dropped. But that was a global credit recession. You know, that was the home mortgages melting down. I don't know that you can say, no, it was $100 oil that caused demand destruction. So mm-hmm. we really don't have a good piece of data here. The, the one flip side I'll say on this is, you know, Brad Olson's point is you look at energy costs as a percent of your net income and household wealth. That's actually at historic lows. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, you know, if you're looking at the budget, it's not taking as big a bite as it used to, but it sure feels like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild. And, and there's, there's really going to be no relief in sight. Uh, I, don't, I don't see anything that's indicating that gas prices are going to go down anytime soon. So we're not moving the digital wildcat or headquarters to Richmond, Texas to shorten <sighs> my commute. If you want me and my family to move in with you, which I mean, you might have room. You might you have can, room. You can have the third floor. I ought to count me in. There All right. Go. So switching gears, uh, for those who don't know, you were on the board of Montrose Lane, the you know venture capital group uh, here in Houston, focused mostly on investing in energy tech. I think they've had like one investment that was kind of like outside of that. You put together a list of like some learnings. I think it's actually going to be a podcast, but you kind of want to go through some of that today. Uh, some of the things that... I'm guessing this was like more of like preaching to their portfolio companies so of just how to weather this recession, This was right? CEO conference. Yeah. So they had, I believe, 10 CEOs together. We, we ran over to New Orleans. 
think all day locked in a conference room, kind of running through, what are you dealing with? So just a couple of things that came out, you know, I've been to, I think, four of these now. And the first three of them were all about sales, growth and sales, customer acceptance. How do we get, you know, Chevron to, uh, to use our software? What's the process like? Man, this one, all about positive net income. How do we get to positive net income? Yeah. Don't care about growth. Because, you know, I didn't, this is, you're going to say, well, no shit, Sherlock. I don't know that I appreciated, but, you know, the uh, Montrose Lane's basically doing software-type companies. Mm-hmm. They talk a lot about digitization, and, and that's really their expertise. If you think about it, those companies got hit pretty hard when energy collapsed. And now that energy's doing well, doing great, they're getting slammed by the technology collapse that we've seen this year. Yeah. So they really haven't had a lot of access. Here's a, here's a good data point, and this isn't specific to, to Montrose Lane's uh, portfolio companies. I can't necessarily speak to that, but I can just say from you know having founders in our office you know, three, four times a week uh, for a variety of you know podcast meetings and things like that, thinking back to that time was so depressing because a lot of these founders would come in and they're like, dude, we lost 30 to 50% of our revenue. Clients yeah. just came in across the board, just canceled it. I mean, half their clients are going bankrupt. I mean, it was a wild time in, in 2020 and 2021. So, yeah, and then now coming out of this and then going right into this, you know, this, you know, tech correction, whatever you want to call it, and then also this impending kind of recession. Yeah, so it was, a lot of things to prepare for. It was weird. It was kind of the, the Charles Dickens best, best of times, worst of times, because all the companies are having record quarters in terms of sales. Customers are doing well. There was a we had a long discussion about you know a dollar today is not worth what a dollar was last year. So you got to go in and raise your price on your products mm-hmm. to your customers. And actually, as just loathe as a CEO is to man, I just made this great sale. Now I'm going to go in and ask for more. Uh, customers have actually been pretty receptive to it. That was one mm-hmm. of the messages. They're all dealing with it in their business. They expect it. The other thing I found interesting about the whole meeting was customers today are willing to consider and or some are actually demanding investment opportunities into the suppliers. So these software companies. It's really interesting. It's and I, I think it's driven by the fact these EMP companies have cash on their balance sheet. Yep. That, you know, and they're not drilling as many wells as, as like. The the big takeaway lesson, we spent a lot of time on it, was if you're gonna do that, negotiate the sales contract first, get a positive construction constructive sales contract for your company, then talk about the investment. If you mm-hmm. go the other way, it never works. Mm-hmm. No one's gonna buy software from you because they're invested in you. And in fact, it makes the negotiation on the sales of the software even harder. This is this is really interesting because this is so counter to, to how things have traditionally been, particularly if you're going to some of the larger larger ENPs. Um, even if you're going through one of the, the, the corporate venture capital arms, it's like, oh, we want to invest in you guys and stuff. And then it turns into you giving your, your, your product uh, away for practically for free. And then they beat you up on deliverables to where like this is not a net positive outcome for your company. Just to add this new logo, like you're so in the red. And so it is interesting that companies are now kind of wanting. I mean, this is a good alternative to how things have traditionally gone. So 
Very, very interesting to see but how you're this right. kind of plays so out. This was kind of cool. I got to be the the podcast is called Fly on the Wall because mm-hmm. uh, I ran I ran um, film sitting in that meeting, so I'm gonna have clips from that. Couldn't show as much of it as I wanted to because we got into some details that just couldn't be public. But uh, you'll get to be a fly on the wall for that. I uh, took copious notes and reported back um, some other stuff, and I shot the whole podcast on my iPhone. Nice. And, uh, and edited it. So it'll. Uh, iPhones. I mean, you can do a lot with an iPhone. Yes. You can do a lot with an iPhone. Including at the end of it, the jazz band we went and saw that night. Ah. So. I actually like jazz. It was very good. It was Lena Prima, who is no, Louis Prima's daughter. No clue who that she is. She was really good. Yeah. Sounds good, though. I'll have to check it out. It was very good. So I hate to do this, but because uh, it's so obvious, but we're ready for Finger of the Week. Let's do it. Jake, I did, who else could we give it to? But Biden this weekend tweeted out that basically gas station owners were being greedy. Need we were at war. We needed to lower the cost. So let me just throw some stats. Wait, let's let's okay. clear something up real quick. Let's yep. clear something up real quick. I did post. So like one of my rules is like not getting political, right? But I did post on LinkedIn the picture of it's a quote of two of Biden's quotes that he said. And got a lot of hate on, on LinkedIn for it. I think it was just a bunch of Biden lovers. So let's clarify. I think Biden is senile, and I think that he has hand, like, an entire team of handlers that are just feeding him things, right? And so I think it's not necessarily just the Biden. I think it's the whole the whole administration, Fair. right? Whole administration, not necessarily him personally. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think he's. I don't think he's in. I don't think he's like Trump. I don't think he controls his Twitter. Like I think he's got you know a team. Yeah. In, I don't think he knows what Twitter is. Probably somebody somebody tweeted yeah. that back. Hey, can you? Or it was it was the API or it was some oil and gas association mm-hmm. said, can we come educate the intern that sent this tweet out? <laughs> <laughs> because so just just some real quick facts here about gas station owners. There are 145 fueling stations in America. About 130,000 of those are convenience stores. So 145,000. 145,000, yeah. Uh, Are fueling stations. About 130,000 of those are convenience stores. So the rest are like marine dock fueling stuff. But anyway, so refiners own less than 5% of those convenience stores. More than 60% of those convenience stores are owned by individuals or families that own one store. Mm-hmm. So talk about mom and pop businesses in America. On average, a convenience store makes about $60,000 a year. The federal and state taxes on the average gallon of gas is about 27 cents. You know, the feds are, call it 18, 19, tack, states always tack on. The average margin that a convenience store makes on gasoline is one cent a gallon. Because they basically break even on gasoline and they make their money on alcohol, tobacco. That was always that was my always understanding. That was the whole point of the convenience stores. You make your money on the convenience stuff, but you make practically no money on gasoline. Yeah. Right. So if you're making one cent per gallon is your current margin, how are you going to lower that anymore? Yeah. While right? while the government is making twenty seven. 
So the government's making 27 times what you're making, but you're the problem. And what what gets me is not to bitch, because I'm with you. I try not to be political either. What gets me is the fundamental lack of education mm-hmm. about the industry, and we're not having constructive dis, uh, discussions about it. Because, you know, as we've said on the podcast all the time, people die when you have to buy energy yeah. from authoritarian dictators, and people die when energy prices are high. And so the lack of understanding, it just deserves a constructive put the political bullshit at the side. Let's talk about energy, energy security, those type of issues. And it's mm-hmm. just not getting it. It's being demagogued. Yeah. yeah. You, you just got the, the least smartest people in the room have the largest megaphone. And there's just not many of us that are, you know, I guess standing up to that. Yeah. So gas station owners, man, those are some of the hardest working people. I've, I've lived in the same house for seven years. I've gone to the same gas station for seven years. I've got a good relationship with my guy who like owns the gas station. Yeah. Dude takes one day off every 15 days. That's crazy. There every single day, every single day, morning, night, does not matter. Hardest working. So by administration, quit fucking with our gas station owners, man. Those are some of the immigrants, man, dude, the hardest working people there are. Well, you know, when Jane Stricker came on the podcast, she started off her career in convenience stores for BP. I know we just yep. said that refiners own less than 5% of them, but she started off her career there. And I threw this stat at her, and she said, it sounds right. She couldn't confirm it. 25% of your inventory is stolen when you run a convenience store. Yeah. I'm so, I mean, could you imagine that's your business? You're making $60,000 a year trying to feed your family, and you have to spend all day trying to mm-hmm. keep people from stealing your yeah. show. So. Another thing that people, most people don't realize, let's just also talk about some other misconceptions. If you've got on one corner, you have a Shell gas station. On another corner, you have called a BP gas station. And then you could have on the other two corners, two other brands that people know about. Guess what? They all get their gas from the closest refinery. Yeah. It's not, there's no, spe- obviously whenever things come in, there are like, I think Chevron has like their, their blends that they'll actually do. A lot of that I think happens actually subsurface at the gas station, it's like you, you pump in gas, you pump in the additive, things like that. But outside of that, it's all the same shit. Like, yeah. So if you think that you're getting better gasoline because you're paying 12 cents more than the one across the street, you're not. It's all from the same place. About 40% of the convenience stores in America sell gasoline under a brand name like Exxon, Chevron, yeah. Shell, whoever doesn't mean Exxon, Chevron, and Shell own the station. Yeah. In fact, it's just a licensing agreement in yeah. between them. You're yeah, I've, always, I've always wondered how the uh, yeah, I've always wondered how the deals look on those kind of things. It's just like, hey, we're gonna we'll give you a sign, we'll give you the the colors, and you guys can just license it. We still need we need to get either on BDE or my podcast, or quite frankly, y'all's podcast. We need to get '90s Random to come in here and talk about refining and downstream stuff because yeah. there are just so many misconceptions. There. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, cool. This was fun. Hey, dude. Thanks yeah. for uh, thanks for doing it. Thanks for having the healthy prostate. <laughs> you know, somebody, somebody's got to be healthy around here. Exactly. Hey, guys, appreciate you tuning in this week. Subscribe to uh, BDE. Tomorrow, I think I'm going to redrop the Energy Policy Podcast. But like I said, next week we'll have uh, the Montrose Lane Fly on the Wall podcast coming out. Jake, what's up with you guys? 
Uh, I think we've got a couple. I mean, we've got a couple of really good podcasts. But on the on the venture capital kind of side, we did a we did a podcast with Scaleview Ventures, which was founded by the two former founders of Mineralsoft, who exited to Inveris, and now they're they're not really a VC firm. They're actually a tech investment bank, and it was actually the favorite podcast that we've ever done. It was such a good conversation. We talked about everything under the sun. We also have the Presidio show coming out soon. So oh, cool. that's all nice and edited up. So if you ever wondered what it's like to build an EMP kind of behind the scenes, uh, we've got kind of unparalleled access in the office in the field. Um, so we should be dropping that either this week or next week, uh, and then every week after that for um, for a couple months. So super excited. Pay attention to that. Outside of that, I'm trying to think what else we have going on. For we got Fuse. We got Fuse coming up in October. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be like the largest energy tech summit uh, in the world, bringing together all the different energy verticals and all the most cutting-edge technology, very similar to Empower. We're doing it at our home base in East Downtown uh, here in Houston out of 8th Wonder, but this time we're actually taking up four times as much space as we did Empower. So shooting for about 3,000 attendees or so, tons of different technology companies. It's going to be wild. Very cool. Very cool. For all our political griping today, we do live on the greatest country. Con- we do live in the greatest country in the planet. Happy birthday yesterday, two hundred and forty-six. God bless America. My my brother, my youngest brother, texted me yesterday. He goes, "Hey, happy Fourth of July! I just want to thank you for your service." And I was like, "Dude, I did not fight any Brits. Okay, so <laughs> I don't know why you're thanking me for my service right now." I've got a friend that's British, and I texted her yesterday, happy treasonous colony today. <laughs> <laughs> she still thinks we'd be a lot better off if we were drinking tea every afternoon well, and, and, uh, and saluting the queen, but you know, we'll leave it at that. I know. Peace out, everybody.